What is up, Brad fans? I hope you are doing well wherever you are. This episode, I am happy to introduce you to two filmmakers from Canada, Nate Slacko and Bryce Zimmerman. They joined me to talk about their latest film, Moonless Oasis. So this is a documentary that follows a group of citizen scientists. Uh, they're all divers uh, on the West Coast in Howe Sound, so off the coast of uh, Vancouver. And they are attempting to find and document locations where a previously thought to be extinct you know, ancient type of um, sponge, sea sponge, is living off the west coast. So these things were thought to be extinct forever. We'd seen fossils and stuff of them, but that was it. Uh, and they have been discovered off the west coast of Vancouver um, at very deep depths. So these uh, group of individuals are out there uh, trying to find exactly where these sponge reefs are so that they can inform um, research and conservation. It's a very uh, busy stretch of water, so it's important that uh, we realize and, and find where these things are. Um, so the film follows this group. It's a really great uh, movie. I would highly recommend those in Canada. Uh, you can watch it on the CBC streaming service, Gem. Uh, for everyone outside of Canada, we have to wait a little bit longer before we can get a wider release. Um, but if you go to moonlessoasis.com, you can sign up for an email list. Um, and the guy specifically mentioned that, you know, if people sign up for the list and get in touch and let them know where they are in the world, that will actually really help them in trying to secure a larger distribution for the film. And, you know, the, I'd, I'd say the, the cinematography and the shots of, of the, the sponge reefs underwater and the, you know, just the shots of the West Coast uh, alone are worth the price of admission. Really, really beautiful stuff. I really enjoyed talking to the guys. They're not scientists, but they learned uh, quite a bit about the sponges. And so we talked about the sponges themselves, why it's important to 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 do this work, to find them. But then we talked a lot about um, making science films uh, based on characters and just sort of the, the process behind that, because these guys aren't scientists and coming from from a filmmaking perspective to do, you know, I think this was, I think they said it was their first sort of science uh, informed project. So that was a real treat for me as someone who, you know, is attempting to, you know, bring science outside of, outside of academia, we'll say. Um, so it was really, really great to meet the guys. Uh, I really want to thank them for coming on the show again. Go to moonlessoasis.com. Uh, Moonless Oasis is the social media handle as well. Um, Follow, give them a follow, let them know you're out there and that you want to see the film, and hopefully they can get it to a broader audience. But again, if you're in Canada, it is available on the streaming service CBC Gem. All right, before we get to the conversation, I have to plug my own stuff. You know it. At 2 brad for you on social media, at bvampardon on social media, 2BradForYou.wordpress.com. Please reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of the episode what you want to hear in future episodes, uh, and I will do my best to accommodate you. But you got to let me know first. So here we go, my conversation with Nate Slacko and Bryce Zimmerman. Mm. 
All right. Well, I'm joined today by filmmakers, uh, Nate Slacko. Did I get Hello. that right, Slacko? Yeah, you did. Thank you. All right. Okay. And uh, Bryce Zimmerman. Hi, Bryce. Hello. Um, yeah. And so we're here to talk about your latest project, Moonless Oasis, which already premiered on the CBC and is now available on the CBC streaming service in Canada, CBC Gem. Um, like I was telling you guys just before we started, I got a chance to watch the movie just today. I really enjoyed it. And where I'd like to start is the setting, because seeing the footage from the West Coast, it takes place in Howe Sound, I believe, um, on the West Coast, really made me miss home, really made me miss the West Coast. I'm from Alberta originally, but have lots of family on the West Coast. And it's just a stunning landscape. It's so beautiful. So maybe we can start there. You can kind of give us the setting where the movie takes place above water, and then we can go into what's happening below the water, which is where a lot of the film also takes place. Um, I don't know who wants to start there. Yeah, I, I can. I'll let you guys. You. Yeah. So How Sound is probably about like a thirty-minute drive from downtown Vancouver, and it basically, if you're driving from Vancouver to Whistler, it's the road that goes all along the water up to Whistler, and it's kind of got these mountains and islands on both sides, super beautiful, snow-capped peaks, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, and it's a road that I've driven my entire life and have, haven't given it too much thought as to what was underwater there uh, up until recently. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's for people outside of Canada or for people from other parts of Canada that haven't been there, it truly is one of the most you know, breathtaking landscapes I've, I've ever seen that sort of Northern rainforest and whatnot is yeah, quite beautiful. And Bryce, if I'm correct, you're from Alberta originally. So was this, uh, when you are, are you based in Vancouver now? I am based in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up in Alberta, you must always, you know, people always want to go to BC to vacation. And was this when, what brought you over to the West coast? Was it the landscape being one of the things? I mean, it's always a always a bit of a draw. I think it doesn't hurt. Um, I mean, I moved out uh, mostly for like a kind of a job opportunity. Um, as a fellow Albertan, I'm sure you're aware that depending on what you do, it's not always the place you can stay, even if you love mm -hmm. it. So um, yeah, I kind of ended up moving out for for film related work. And um, but you know, I grew up doing a lot of outdoor stuff. I used to teach outdoor skills and canoeing, and so it's kind of a natural. Uh, fit to go into film and it's kind of a way to continue that outdoor uh, work while also making stuff and so any opportunity I have to go out on the ocean on the water in any of these locations is just like absolutely something I take advantage of yeah amazing um so then shifting back to the film there you mentioned you know the outdoor pursuits and wanting to sort of get that love of that stuff and also be doing it with, with the, with your career. Um, the film itself kind of centers around these citizen scientists that are kind of doing that as well. They're blending their love of diving and, and the ocean with um, a scientific project. So maybe you can, um, again, I'll leave it open to you guys who wants to take the question, but explain sort of what the, what the project was. Um, and then we can discuss sort of citizen science and, and a little bit about the, the creatures that these citizen scientists were, were after, that they were attempting to document. Right. So the film follows a team of citizen scientists that, uh, made of divers and non-divers working to protect these glass bunch reefs of house sound. A glass bunch reef is very similar to 
a coral reef, but it's a silica-based life form. Kind of looks like a melting candle tube type thing. Uh, yeah, so we found out, found out about Hamish and his team, and it was kind of, at first, uh, just seeing the level of technicality and complexity of getting down to these sites and then actually seeing the sites, that's kind of what attracted us to the project. And then we heard about all these other people that are involved and have been involved for decades, uh, you know, and it's a slow moving beast, but like what they've been able to accomplish is quite impressive. Mm -hmm. So their goal is we have these, these glass sponges, like you mentioned, um, very delicate creatures that grow on the bottom of the of the ocean or the seafloor, we'll say. And um, so they're out there just trying to sort of find these and, you know, sort of flag them so that they can be, the areas can be protected because these sponges are like very unique to this part of the world, correct? Yeah. So they've actually, they thought they were extinct for the last 40 million years. So uh, finding out about what they, like seeing them here, and I, I should also mention how sound is a very like high traffic area. So like there mm -hmm. is like some a high risk of them being damaged. So I think it's kind of a little bit of a slow race to uh, try and dive new sites, explore them, and then also bring that information to the departments and fisheries of oceans uh, to potentially get them protected. Just like increase awareness with the general public because you know, a lot of people from Vancouver are out there on their boats during the weekends. And I think everyone should just be aware of what's down there. And also, we don't know a lot about them. So the more, the longer we can keep them around, like the more we'll know about them and how they can benefit us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like everything, they play a role in the ecosystem and the sponges themselves, you know, from my biology background, I'm tr trying to <laughs> going way back here, but trying to remember, they, you know, filter water through their bodies to feed and stuff. So they play this really important role in the ecosystem in terms of like filtering water and things like this. Um, so yeah, I mean, fascinating from the point of view that these things were thought to be extinct you know, and they're like ancient, ancient life forms. But yeah, also kind of, what, yeah, go for uh, it, Bryce. I was gonna say, it's kind of wild just because yeah, like they filter so much um, and the conditions that exist for them to, to do this and these bioherms only exist in house sound. And like on the filtering side of things, one of the things we found fascinating was just how much water they filter because, you know, what makes them an animal is that they do actively feed on something, mm -hmm. not a plant. Um, and they filter, I think, 17 billion liters of seawater a day. We've heard various kind of comparisons to make that more palatable. One being that's 6,500 Olympic swimming pools a day. It's my um, Yeah, or like it, they turn over the, all the water in Howe Sound three times a year in terms of filtration. Or the other one I find kind of even almost more fascinating is that if you kind of took the similar volume of all the effluent from Vancouver, they could do it in about two hours. Yeah. And they're like, and they're not that big. <laughs> no, like these, no. these tiny things that just like their whole existence is just sucking through water, water through their bodies and, and yeah. feeding. But the, um, the underwater shots of these things, these reefs where these uh, glass sponges um, exist was really quite stunning too. I mean, did you, were you guys diving actively or were the divers taking the, the footage and you guys dealing with the footage after? Yeah, so Bryce and I are both not divers, and we were like a little bit uh, 
you know, there was, there was a, a steep learning curve as to how to shoot this. Um, our Hamish Tweed, the main diver from the team, uh, he would go out there before we were even around and he would just attach a GoPro to his scooter. And then kind of when we were meeting up with him, he would show us this footage. And I think Bryce and I uh, were both kind of pleased with what he was getting already with not, you know, not a professional grade camera. And then Bryce, uh, do you want to talk about your course and all that? Yeah, sure. So basically, yeah, like Nate said, Hamish is Hamish had a good understanding kind of how to make the sponge and these reefs themselves um, look more than kind of just pointing a camera at something. But instead, he was really trying to capture the size and scale of them. And, you know, he'd already kind of figured out lighting techniques and he was putting divers in the shots so you can kind of see scale. So he had a pretty mm -hmm. sophisticated understanding of how to actually make the visuals look good, but he was using just like a kind of an older GoPro. So it wasn't coming back with the quality we wanted. So um, kind of as part of this, we're like, you know what, let's just teach Hamish like how to film better. Let's just, you know, use this as an opportunity to teach like the whole like dive team how to film better, like might as well just throw a course together. And so I did a bit of a workshop just kind of explaining some of the principles behind things and just nothing crazy, but you know, like, if you light it like this, like, what is that saying? And really trying to focus on the, I guess, expressionistic side of film where it's like, what are we trying to say with this shot or the style of lighting as opposed to just pointing the camera at something? And uh, Amish really enjoyed that. And then it was a struggle to get an actual camera down there. It took us a while to figure out what camera system to use. And there was a few hiccups. One time we went for like a test dive with the camera system and it, the camera just shut off underwater and that was it. Just like thousands of dollars gone, nothing to, <laughs> nothing to get. Not very fun when you have a limited budget. Um, but eventually we did find kind of a better camera system and like using a Panasonic GH5S and a Nauticam housing that was supplied by Adam Taylor, who's one of the kind of community members. He's part of MLSS, the Moon Life Sanctuary Society. Um, and that was just such a savior because it's both 4K, it has great color depth and it like, can handle the darkness and I don't think that would have happened if we'd shot this even like two years ago so it was mm. a it was a pretty intense experience to get that to happen but ultimately like you know we couldn't be happier with the with the footage itself but it was just a struggle to even get to that point where we could film <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's kind of cool because it's like you know you have these um like we've been saying these citizen science people so they're kind of volunteering their time to do this you know, passion project. And then you guys get to see that passion. You get to share yours with them uh, and teach them a little bit about film. You're learning, but like, there's this great sort of cross, you know, dynamic going on. Um, you mentioned, you know, just saying like the expressive side of film. So I just wanted to stick on that for a second, because what was it that, you know, Hamish, he's kind of the team lead, the guy that's really going after these sponges and, and trying to conserve, uh, you know, conserve them and stuff. Um, what was his, you know, thoughts? Like, what was he trying to convey when you said, okay, we could do it this way. And what is that saying? And, you know, did you get a sense like he had a, an idea of what he wanted to show people about these? I think he just wanted to show uh, a bigger picture of what's down there. Like glass sponge exists everywhere in the world, but what makes them unique here are these reefs and bioherms. So the way that he's figured out that like lighting system with the bar with two high powered lights to have someone floating up above the main diver just to give a, a better perspective of how far these reefs extend. I think that's what his goal was to just, it's really all about perspective. Like even just having a diver down there and 
you can kind of see, you know, the size of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we—I don't think we necessarily asked him to like go in and be like, okay, like make this shot like this. It was more just like think about the why, and I think we already had that why, but it just kind of we were just asking him to kind of take it to another level. When he's going down there before, he obviously wants to show the reefs, but it is a little bit more documentation. It's a little bit more for his like presentations. In this case, we're like we just want this to be kind of as powerful as possible. So like anytime there's those shots of the fish and the lights kind of sweeping through it, and he just uh, I guess we, he said in our Q and A the other day that we had, he just kind of gave him the confidence to to really do his thing, and he wasn't overthinking it too much, and he was just like sitting there and kind of letting it happen. And I think it worked out incredibly well. He really kind of just responded to the scene in a way that was organic and natural, and and really helped kind of convey the feeling of being there, rather than necessarily like kind of a scientific point of view, which you see a lot in in other films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, actually, that was one of the things that I um, I also was thinking and was writing down when I was watching the film that it wasn't like, um, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't sort of a, a, you know, a narrator jumping in every, you know, so often to sort of explain the science and explain this, you know, what was going on and stuff. It was really just watching the conversations unfold and watching the team do its thing. And then, yeah, these sort of shots of what they're doing, like, this is why we're down here is these big, you know, these reefs that just look really really great um so yeah i guess i'm just kind of curious like was that something that you just your style of filmmaking or was it particular to this project where it's like look we don't we're not here to beat you over the head with the message of like these things are millions of years old and they're this is why they're neat and this or you just you just thought it was better just let it unfold or were you approaching it from the characters or how did that come about yeah, we kind of talked about it before we started shooting and we didn't really want it to be like your typical uh, science doc. We wanted to really show uh, the the human element of it and like why it's important to these people. So uh, hopefully you can relate that to something in your backyard. You know, it's like we, ch- we chose to try and tell it through their story and why they're passionate about it and like hopefully this is kind of a hook as well. So people can go to these sites like Marine Life Sanctuary Society or Underwater Council of BC and learn more, you know, cause all those facts are there and there's still lots more that they are going to learn about them. Yeah, we just wanted to kind of, I guess, try something where it's a little more immersive. We kind of tried to take ideas from more of a fiction filmmaking approach where, you know, like the camera's not present per se, It's it's kind of, just there but you're not like who's operating the camera whereas in documentaries it's very obvious that the filmmakers involved and so we kind of tried to I guess avoid that a little bit and hopefully keep people kind of immersed in it and we know we're asking the audience a lot because we're not necessarily explaining everything but it's just a different kind of approach and hopefully one that gets people excited about kind of the idea of the sponge and then they don't and then they want to go learn more they don't leave the film being like I know everything about that and I never have to think about it again Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, is that you sort of kind of whet the appetite, right, of the audience to be like, oh, look at like, I've seen these beautiful images now. Um, I've seen these people that are quite dedicated and you get that in the film, especially and we can get to this in a, in a minute, the the danger that's involved in what they're doing is quite, quite real. Um, so, you know, you get that passion. And I think that does come across where it's like, you know, even, you know, as the film ended, I was I just started Googling like 
glass sponges like what what what's what's the deal with these things you know um so i think that 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 worked really well and even like i said i have a biology background so i kind of already know a bit about sponges and stuff but i was i was intrigued to do to do a bit more um and being a, a person that's now involved in science communication, like I went from, you know, doing lab work and, you know, field work as well. And uh, even working with, you know, hunters. So doing the citizen science kind of thing in, in my work um, and then moving to sort of science communication or journalism and, you know, these different hats that I'm now wearing. I just I'm, I'm acutely aware of how difficult it can be to um to, to find that balance that you guys did or to take that, um, you know, maybe a, a bit of a risk in terms of being like, look, at, we're not going to go the hard information route. We're going to, you know, use techniques from fictional uh, film filmmaking or storytelling and stuff like that. So I'm curious, when you were working with the scientists, did they, were they interested in that as well? Or would, were they concerned or did they see the risk in it? Or they were just like, no, we trust you guys. Do what you're going to do. I don't think it ever came up really. <laughs> like, uh, no, it's a, a lot like... of times, uh, we, we'd like start shooting with them and they'd, they'd like turn to us and start talking to us. We're like, actually, can you not do that? We're like trying not to go there with this. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they yeah. you know, start. So, yeah, I don't think we got like a lot of confusion with that. No, I don't think, you know, it's, it's kind of funny um, in these situations, you know. There is so much trust. Like I think everyone involved in this film really just had to kind of put their trust in us because, you know, they don't know necessarily how we're going to make the film or what we're going to do. And so I think even like the style of the film wasn't necessarily apparent to them. And even if we told them kind of how we were trying to do it, obviously there's a thing there. So for the most part, I think we just showed up and people just kind of were more than happy and willing to help out. There was no real discussion around what it was going to be like in the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I bring it up just because it's like, depending on the, the role that you're doing or the project that you're doing, I find there's, there's sort of two, the scientist community, the science community kind of falls into two different camps. There's like some that are super eager to do whatever they can to sort of get their message out, get their research out, even if they're not great communicators or storytellers, the, the, that enthusiasm is still there. Or you get this, um, yeah, really sort of closed off, you know, why am I bothering to tell people this? They won't understand or or even some of them jaded, you know, like I've tried to explain this to people and they don't understand or they don't get it or they don't care. So it seemed, though, that like this group that you were working with was pretty enthusiastic about what they were doing and obviously very open about um, working with you guys. Have you done science films in the past or is this kind of the first foray into that? This is definitely my first time at this. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I used to do a lot more like kind of corporate video stuff. So I've done kind of ex explanations of things. Most famously, I did a series of videos on property tax assessment. So Ooh, yeah, also I've just been, as exciting. I have um, it bookmarked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, for the most part, um, the science side, I think that's the thing. Like we didn't, we're not scientists. Um, so we didn't want to necessarily step on toes and tell people that we're experts in the science we've always tried to stay away from that obviously we're communicating what we learn but i think that was also part of the reason we didn't make this a science doc was because that's not our area of expertise and i think we probably would have done a worse job if we tried to pretend that we're scientists what we do mm -hmm. know how to do is talk about people so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so then um getting to some of the characters in the film the people 
I mean, and we talked, I alluded to the fact that there was some, uh, some dangerous moments. Um, and I believe it was because the, the depths at which these things, these reefs are and that they have to dive to is actually quite tricky in terms of, you know, diving, you know, you get the depths and then all the risks of, of diving get compounded at that depth. Um, not to mention the water is cold out there too. So, um, what were the characters like? Was there some that like stuck out more than others as where you were kind of like impressed with their motivation or like, Oh my God, these guys are kind of crazy. Like who, who was it that, that sort of struck you? I mean, I guess Hamish was the original inspiration for the story, correct? For sure. Yeah. No, uh, I honestly think there's characters and like everyone's a character in the movie, even the people who aren't part of the main dive team, the divers themselves, like just, by what they are doing makes them crazy. So, uh, but that being said, like Hamish is, what makes Hamish a little bit quirky is like, he's just so passionate. And like, it was never like, if, if Bryce and I were brainstorming ideas, Hamish was never like, oh, like that's gonna be really hard to do. He was brainstorming in his head while we were brainstorming. So he was, he, he's, he just loves to come up with ideas and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and everyone else on the dive team, like everyone's just so, like there's no real egos there. They're all like quirky in their own way, but like they're not like gung ho. Like, they're I don't know. It seems like they're all doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like overall, I think that's it's a tough part of docs, but I think something you kind of have to try and figure out as you go along is just that you need people who are characters. You know, it doesn't usually work if someone's not kind of willing to give themselves, I don't want to say perform, because it's sort of like the wrong term, but people do kind of have to perform a little bit, right? If someone's really boring, unfortunately, it doesn't really work. So I think, like Nate was saying, by the very nature of this project, this opportunity, like someone like Glenn, who went out in his boat and mapped how sound with a homemade drop camera for 10 years by himself, <laughs> like that's, that's the definition of character. Um, or even... One of our favorites was Dr. Jeff Marlier because he's one of those rare people that's exactly the same on camera and off camera. Like it doesn't change anything. Yeah. And so we just had some like beautiful, hilarious moments with him and he's just, he's just great to be around. So um, yeah, there's just every, everyone involved really was completely different, but like brought something totally unique. Yeah. Cool. The, um, some of the moments of, you know, sort of character that like, again, I'm kind of alluding to the, maybe the, the danger that, that these uh, people were embarking on is those moments before they go in the water, when they're doing these checks on their equipment and everything like this. And it's like, everything seems to get so serious. And they all, they, I, I noticed they all gave a fist bump. Like it was almost seemed like that was like the part of the, the ritual check of the equipment and everything. And then it was this everybody the three that were going in all gave this fist bump so it was really kind of cool to see the and again without like the need to sort of explain the motivations or the relationships and stuff but to just see that um these moments in the boat and then I, again i, I don't want to give too much away but there is a tense moment where you know it looks like some 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 of the divers might be in distress and there's the cutting to the people on top and then the action that's happening below and everything. And it was just like, I thought those were like really cool moments. And as a scientist, former scientist, people don't realize, you know, when you say, oh, I'm a, I'm a scientist, everyone thinks the lab coat, the, you know, beakers and, you know, stuff like that. But you don't realize that there's actually these people out here kind of doing this crazy stuff. 
For sure. Yeah. No, they definitely all the all the technical divers that we followed, they definitely like have their own rituals. And it, like that's the first shot in the film, even they're always doing these checks and kind of making sure they're all on the same page. Uh, and it, it is quite serious before those dives. And it's funny because we actually we went out with the deep dive team and then we went out with a different team who are limited to shallow uh, air gas divable dives. And uh, the vibe of, of those two dives are completely different, whereas the shallower dives, everyone's laughing, having fun, kind of, you know, it's, it's very short and quick dives. And then you go to the deep dive team where it's like they're going down to, you know, around 200 feet below the surface. And it's just a completely different ball game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I don't dive uh, myself um, I tended to uh, agree with the other character that popped up in the film who was, I believe he was a fisherman, uh, the guy that was getting the prawns. And he said, I don't dive because I know what lives down there. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of how I feel too. Um, and seeing some of those shots like, you know, that they were getting from the reefs are beautiful, amazing. But you, you see the darkness, like when the lights are peering through the darkness and you just see how dark it is down there. And I, to me, I just don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do that. Did this experience make you guys want to dive or? Uh, not particularly. Like I am in the process of getting my patty because I would like to like dive one of the shallower sites one day. But I remember one of the first videos that Hamish ever showed me was uh, their, one of their dives on Lions Bay, which is I, I believe at 220 feet. And it's five, like it's an uncut video, but the first five minutes are him and the team just descending along this line. All you see is the line going down or going up, I guess, while you're going down in particular. And then after five minutes, all of a sudden the dive lights pick up on the reef on the bottom and it's just the most eerie feeling in the world. And that's kind of where the name comes from. It's, it's this hidden world down there that, you know, no sunlight gets down to and just complete, uh, completely feels like an alien world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's wild. Like when we first embarked on this, like it's like, I think diving overall is relatively safe. Uh, if you do it appropriately. Um, I think that there is a danger to it. It's funny because to us on the outside, we were just like exposed to how much danger there is from the beginning. And divers always talk about things that could go wrong and how they could die. And I guess that's part and parcel with staying safe as you need to know what can go wrong. But things don't usually go wrong, but when they do, it can be like really catastrophic. And so it's kind of funny because I think most people start diving because they're like, oh, cool, I get to go down and see a tropical reef or I'm in Thailand or whatever. And we came into the, the dive world where it's like we're going super deep into black cold water. It's basically space. If you miss your mark, you just are gone. Like there's just so many things like that. So I don't think we got the introduction to like diving is amazing. We got the introduction to diving is terrifying. <laughs> and so I don't think that made either of us necessarily want to jump in the water right away. It yeah. didn't really help that like uh, Hamish would throughout our conversations leading up to this, like Hamish would always throw in a story of just like the most terrifying experience he's had. And he'd tell it in a very like aloof manner that just make it sound like this is, you know, what happens so <laughs> yeah i wonder how much of that is like you said it's sort of like necessary right like it, it's reminding yourself that like these things can happen but i feel like it's also probably a little bit like um 
like a personality quirk of the people that do that, right? Like it's the same with if, you know, I have friends that do lots of kind of, I wouldn't say extreme, but like sort of backcountry skiing or, you know, things, activities like this where you're like, you know, things could go wrong and they've had, you know, close calls and stuff like that. And there's like this humor that people deal with it. Yeah. Gallows humor kind of. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's uh, I think that's the thing, right? Like even like, I don't know, I can look compared to filmmaking, which is definitely not life or death, but um, you just have to have everything kind of lined up and you have to be fastidious with all those little pieces to make it work. And I think it's the same with diving. And um, if you don't, I think that's when things go wrong. So to get to that point, to go through all the classes, to spend all that money, I think you just have to be the kind of person that has a commitment to that. Uh, I don't think you can kind of be like someone who's loosey-goosey and isn't taking care of their gear and doesn't really pay attention to what they have and just goes out and does that. Otherwise, things would go catastrophically wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and there was, a, again, a, a moment in the film where they sort of address that it's like, it's a team sport, really. So it's like, mm-hmm. if you were that person that was loosey-goosey, you know, with the with the safety or the gear or something like that, you'd get kicked out, I'm sure, pretty quick. You know, oh, yeah. you'd, you'd get weeded out because they're... Yeah, they- they definitely like make a point of making sure everyone's on the same page as far as commitment and uh, like level of serious seriousness they bring into it. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and again, I, I think that that probably translates to a bit why they're doing this. Um, and that was one of the things that you know I I got the the press release for the film and stuff, um, and it was talking about the sponges and this specific environment that they were documenting and they're trying to find more of these uh, sponge reefs and stuff but then learned in the film that this is like a 35 year project and then so i'm assuming it's not just um the sponge reefs that these group of citizen scientists or that's probably changed over the years 35 years is a long time they're just really deeply committed to the environment and the and the and the location yeah i think they um have uh, sorry, Nate. Um, I think they they kind of uh, they mostly like the like we follow sort of the deep glass sponge team, which is a specific group of people who mostly do the deep glass sponge teams, and they came together seven years ago to do those sites. But then within that community, there's a bunch of different people who do a bunch of different things, and so like even Glenn and Adam, they dive. They just don't deep dive. So depending on other sites, like there's Halkett Pinnacle, which is diveable by most people it's within i think advanced recreational limits um and they'll, but they'll do things like trying to put in a mooring boy or like checking for damage or traps and so there is kind of this uh larger group of people doing all sorts of things to kind of help or you know reporting if there's traps in closed areas etc but the d- people that we follow in the film specifically come together for the deep sponges i think that's right yeah, but there's a larger communities of people sort of doing all all kinds of activities in that space, mm-hmm. and that's sure. a that's the kind of thing. And uh, you know, we kind of already maybe covered it a little bit, but the impression of the people that do citizen science, because my experience with it was, um, you know, I was working uh, in my PhD. I was I was collecting livers basically from elk to look for parasites. So super fun, <laughs> gross work. But we had lots of partnerships with hunters, obviously. So when hunters would shoot an elk, shoot an animal, um, they would, you know, help us out and give us the liver or let us know where the where the carcass was or the the guts and stuff. Right? And you get like this whole, I guess in that sense, these people that they're kind of just, hey, we're already here, so we'll help you out if you need. 
but there was like a real, I always was really fascinated by um, the enthusiasm and the interest that people had for the project. You know, at the beginning of hunting season, we'd go in and just say, hey, you know, if you get an animal, could you let us know? We'd like the liver, there's this, that. And they had like this really interesting um, perspective on, you know, sort of the biology and the ecology and stuff of this, you know, what I was like really deep in the science and they were, you know, equally um, knowledgeable, but in a sort of a different way. Did you see like this kind of thing um, in kind of interactions maybe between, you know, the, the, the hardcore science people and sort of the other ones? I know that's kind of a nebulous question. Or, or, or I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Like they definitely like f with us interacting with them, they definitely like fed off our interest. You know, whenever someone shows interest in your passion, uh, you know, that's always a little bit validating. But um, as far as like the different members, I'm not sure. Did you see that, Bryce? I mean, I think like, you know, obviously there was kind of the experience of Glenn finding them and then Dr. Jeff Marleyev uh, kind of identifying them and they discovered that this stuff's worth it. And then they brought in the dive team to go document them. And I think that the divers quickly became sort of not necessarily experts, but kind of it's like the people that go to the moon. Like, who do you talk to? Do you talk to the person who's the astrophysicist who knows everything about the moon? Or do you talk to the person who went to the moon? And I think in this case, they're kind of the person that communicates the experience and the beauty and that's sort of their role. And, and they support the scientists and they do a lot of the work. And, you know, obviously scientists are still, they're designing some experiments or like temperature loggers or things that the divers will go put in. But I think they've become kind of experts on the sponge to a degree in terms of communicating about it. And you see that in the film, Hamish gives presentations all the time. Um, obviously there's a huge upside for the divers as well, because they're getting to go explore places that no one else ever gets to go or may ever get to go. Um, we do say like with Lost Reef, I think only 10 people have been there, which is less than the moon and people might never go back. These sites are protected. So diving them is an incredibly rare and strange opportunity. And so it obviously benefits the divers because they love diving so much that going to these places is beautiful and fascinating, but it also brings so much attention to them that then the Department of Fisheries notions will protect them and then they can do more science, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what you mentioned, uh, sort of at the beginning, uh, Nate, that it's a high traffic area. So I'm just wanted to maybe give a, the audience a bit of, um, you know, uh, context as to, again, why these areas need protection. There's ferry traffic that goes through there. Um, there is fishing, there's prawn fishing, I guess we meet a guy that's doing that in the film. So what are sort of the, the. The difficulties or, or the different like stakeholders, I guess, is the buzzword that you use to describe the people that are using the land or the, the, the section of water. What's what's the conflicts potentially there? Yeah. So like like you said, it's a high traffic area and there's ferry traffic, there's recreational fishermen, there's uh, commercial fishermen. There's the potential of having uh, tankers go up there as well, which would be uh, not a good thing for these reefs. Basically, like like the name implies, they're extremely brittle and any sort of bottom contact, whether it's an anchor or a prawn trap will completely destroy not only what it touches, but uh, like a surrounding area. Um, so yeah, I think it's one of those things like we do know that they filter an incredible amount of water, but we still don't know that much about them. So to have all these different uh, 
players in the sound can make it very difficult to uh, communicate uh, the importance and the like increase awareness overall about these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the tanker traffic uh, on the West Coast, I know that's kind of a contentious uh, issue at the moment. And again, being from Alberta and still having all my family back there, there's a lot of uh, differing opinions as to what should be, what what should be done there. Uh, so I think this film is actually like a good, you know, it, it shows exactly why, you know, that might not be a great idea. Um, but with all of these sort of conservation questions and stuff like that, you, you always do have this sort of balance of perspectives, right? There's some people that are going to say, hey, I need to make a living um, doing this fishing. So the more areas we close off, what's that going to do for me? But um, were you thinking of that when you made the film uh, to be like, well, we kind of we're, we're trying to show that this is why you wouldn't do that, like that th this thing is worth it to protect. Yeah, we tried to th show as many different sides as possible uh, to kind of give a greater perspective. And yeah, it is a high trafficked area, so it might not be the most realistic to just cut off all forms of fishing when it's been fished for, you know, since uh, like. Europeans have been, or even before that, it's been fished for a very long time. So mm -hmm. uh, it's about finding a sustainable way to protect what's there, but also allow certain areas to be uh, used by by the you know people around it. Mm -hmm. So, did you have any conversations with uh, you know about specifically how do you do that? Like, is there a method of fishing that would would be more beneficial or not? Like, are what are the conversations around that? Is it just these are no go zones, or this is, is we could find a way maybe with different fishing techniques or something to get around that, or is it just we don't know yet? So, um, a lot of forms of fishing in house sound are actually restricted to begin with, but there there's certain types of fishing you can do, and if you go to uh, the DFO website there's a map of house sound telling you the areas that you can and cannot be in. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people look at that. Um, so I think like if we can increase awareness with just the general public and let them know about where these areas are, then that's going to solve a lot of the problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, more awareness. Yeah. I think also it's kind of this interesting situation too, where like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I think it's, it's kind of like shifting baseline theory a little bit, but like house sound has been fished for so long and like it used to be like, oh, there's so much fish here and then people fished out the rockfish and then now they have rockfish conservation areas and the rockfish are coming back. And I think it's just this kind of back and forth of development. But the interesting part is like, you know, like the prawn fishermen talk about like if they're getting the best prawns, they don't want to be by that stuff anyways. And so there are ways to deal with it. But it really takes a lot of energy and effort between all the stakeholders to come together and like discuss that. And I think there's, from what we heard, like a lot of historic kind of problems between that. Like there's not always a, like they don't always see eye to eye between the fishermen and the, and the scientists. Um, but that's kind of a big reason why like they want to do more science. They want to learn more is because then they might be able to help. But like the scientists of course are like, just, don't do anything till we know. And the fishermen are like, we can't bear the burden of conservation on our livelihoods. And so you kind of have them at loggerheads and it seems like things are moving forward and there's a lot of different changes. And obviously some of them have been protected and everyone seems pretty happy, but I think there's a lot of kind of 
political finesse that has to happen there to help it out, even though everyone's kind of on the same page and wanting to protect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, like you said, like everybody's a healthy ocean environment would be better for all of those people, all of those players. It's just how do you balance that? I'm interested with it. And I guess we just don't know that much about the glass sponge. But you mentioned how like rockfish, you know, you they fish it out and then with some time and some specific management, it starts, it can cut, you know, it can come back hopefully. But it seems like, you know, my gut impression with the glass sponges is that because they're so old, because they're so unique um, and delicate that you might not get that second chance, you know, to be like, oh, okay, we screwed up X number of sites. Let's just try and, you know, let them grow back. But I guess we don't even really know if that would be the case. So no. And that's the thing is they like, that's why more research needs to be done. Cause they really don't know like their growth rate or like how fast an area can recover from any form of damage. So yeah, every, every hit that a reef takes is like a pretty serious hit. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't know, um, probably much about, you know, the big elephant in the room, climate change and how that would affect them as well. Cause it's, presumably it would. Yeah, I mean, um, that's definitely, you know, an issue for them. And they they kind of uh, live at a certain depth based on the temperature of the water and like how the tides are moving because the tides are what feeds them. So, yeah, the warming of the water, uh, yeah, is not a good thing for them. And yeah, there was that one study from UBC by, I believe, Angela Stevens, who um, kind of showed that basically an increase in temperature would cause issues with them. So that's mm-hmm. the, there is some preliminary evidence that would show that like ocean warming would cause issues, which I don't think is particularly surprising to anyone, but it's good that it was studied. Yeah. It, that's the other thing with science is you know, so these things that like don't appear controversial to the outside. You still, they still gotta, we still need to, you know, do the experiment to show that it would work. But I mean, the ocean is such a connected uh environment that these these changes all over it has these cascading effects that we just don't even really know about i've done a little bit of reporting on this kind of stuff and it's it's amazing to me how little um even people that have dedicated their careers to studying marine environments you know to try and map out all the connections that are there this fish population declines that means this algae goes higher or this plankton and and like the cascading effect is just it's mind blowing. I mean, they, yeah, they, I mean, yeah, go. Let's say with, well, even with like that last, the footage at the end of the film with the lost reef being just so full of fish, you know, even people that I know that have watched the film have been surprised. They don't think about cold oceans like that, right? Mm-hmm. They don't think about these environments like that. And other footage we've seen that's a little bit more close up, like there's squat lobsters and like tons of other animals that live in that area. And it's so it's super diverse and full of life. And I think that's like really important to remember is that like, that's what's kind of helping this happen. And so showing people that I think gives them a lot better sense that like, there's a lot going on. Cause, and I always feel like people think the ocean is just empty except for like the occasional whale going by, but it's actually like incredibly <laughs> full of things. Yeah. I know for sure that people don't think of that, um, on the Northern oceans, right? Like the, the cold, you, you think full ocean, you, you think tropical coral reefs and stuff. But I mean, what we know is that the, the Northern oceans, uh, the West coast and up to Alaska are some of the most productive areas. And that cold water actually is 
you know, really productive for things like plankton and all this stuff, you know, the filter feeding organisms and then up and up and up the food chain. That's where the whales go to feed, you know? Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting when you, when you find that out. And I think that is a cool part about your movie that it does show that there is like this, you know, even at those depths, right. It doesn't even have to be, Oh, that's a cold Northern country. They don't have cool fish or whatever, but it's like, you think, well, man, down there, like, what are they doing? What are they doing down there? It's, it's pretty totally. incredible without, you know, jumping to the old saying that people do What's it? The old, people always like to throw around. We know more about the surface of the moon than, than the bottom of the ocean. But I mean, it is, it is kind of true. true. Yeah. yeah. So what was the, what stood out to you? Like, is there like something about sponges that you learned that blew your mind or like that made you want to, look at more or something like that what was the was there any like sort of big moment kind of takeaway things for you as far as like after completing the film yeah yeah or even uh, like when you were getting interested in making the idea like what was it you heard about these sponges and it's like oh i gotta check that out yeah i think it's like very i think like what draws me to uh making a film is you know just like an exotic place or thing and to see something like that here was kind of strange because, you know, like we just talked about, like, I didn't really think about what was under the water, right? Uh, so, like, initially seeing those pictures, but then uh, when Bryce and I finally did get some usable footage from the Lost Reef and uh, getting home and then actually seeing it on a big screen and just seeing, like, this is the closest we probably ever will get to diving one of these sites. And just seeing like how beautiful it is and all the life down there. Uh, yeah, it just, it's just so incredible just to see that like that exists here. And yeah. my favorite story, I think from the whole thing that we couldn't really include in the film, obviously, because this is just such a slice of time, limited time, but there's a paleontologist in Germany named Manfred Crowder who had been studying the like prehistoric remains. And I think in Europe, there's a lot of places where like hills and different places are made from ancient glass sponge reefs because they used to cover the entire world. And I guess he was studying those. And then they found some living ones off the coast of BC. And it was just like, apparently he like wept because <laughs> you're studying, you're studying dinosaur bones and someone's like, Oh, we found a living one. Like yeah. it's, it's wild. So I think that kind of really like connected me with the idea that like, this is that rare. This is a highly unusual thing. And so it's great to kind of draw more attention to it because of that. And then also the challenge of making the film was also fun. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, do you have, did it make you want to do more science-based or environment-based stuff moving forward? Is that something that we can expect from you? I think for me, I would love to do something like in the similar vein, maybe not on boats for a while, uh, but but from the same perspective where we're uh, covering it from a more human angle, because uh, you know the world's a very interesting place, and there's lots of people doing interesting things to help uh, protect it or learn more about it. So yeah, I would definitely like to do more yeah. similar work. Nate gets really seasick, so it's kind of a funny <laughs> funny uh, experience. To he committed though he. He yeah. made it through. He always came out. There's no, no hesitation on that front. It was yeah. generally like nine out of ten times puking off the side of the boat at some point. Oh, but it was just part of it. It was part of the process. Of you that. have an outtake reel, then I'm I'm assuming. I don't think Bryce got any of that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
<clears throat> and right, yeah. it kind of, you know, gave you motivation to, to try something like this again? Yeah. I mean, I think like for me, uh, like I like the science stuff, but obviously, you know, I think from more from the perspective of the human side of things. And I think that's, what's kind of fascinating. And like Nate and I both share that. And I know he has some other ideas that kind of involve other places, but the same kind of thing is like, it's not just the science or just the environment. It's sort of like our connection to it. How do we impact it? And like that kind of, that kind of intersection is, is fascinating to me and to Nate as well. And so, I mean, I don't mind being on boats, but obviously it's a bit of a challenge and I'd like to try something different next. I'm yeah. just saying like the next one will be on land and then maybe we can <laughs> go back to boats or something. Alternate it, maybe yeah. do something, you know, in the atmosphere, you can check that off the list or something. Yeah. Totally. Um, go ride around on some weather balloons. Maybe. Yeah. You know, there's gotta be something. Um, I really like that you guys said that, you know, like approaching it from the human based angle, the character sort of angle. It's something, again, like I said, moving from the science world into, you know, the communication world, the journalistic world, trying to tell these stories. It's it's such a missed opportunity. Like, I feel like a lot of science, you know, whether it's documentaries or shows or things like this, they really, really miss that character angle unless there is like you know some really quirky you know science guy that they can follow or you get the random you know the every so often the really charismatic science scientist that gives great talks you know but there is such a connection that i feel like people don't understand you know that it's you know there's obviously the environment but there's so much about it like science is such a it's actually quite a personal pursuit, you know, it's, it's quite a, you, first you're, you're driven by passion, but you're, you know, you got these different people with different aims, you know, and you have to be creative in terms of finding solutions for your experiments. I'm sure you witnessed some, some sort of improv that the science teams must have had to do, whether it was, you know, this location is not going to work today because of the weather or something like this. So I really, I resonate with that a lot because I feel like even, you know, in what I do um, with science podcasts or whatever it is that that doesn't get focused enough. And there's like a really like formulaic genre of like, this is how you do science stuff. You know, you have some sound effects and then like facts and some cool shots and stuff, but you don't really ever see the sort of the, the, the human behind it. Yeah, I think there was uh, two reasons for that. Uh, I don't come from a scientific background. Uh, so like, that's kind of what I would relate to is like a more human story. <clears throat> but also just the logistics of like our shooting schedule and like the budget, we just wouldn't be able to have like those super detailed shots, like it can't be 40 minutes of spon sponge footage, because we just weren't able to get that. So yeah, I think like uh, the more human stories, just it made sense in both ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like yeah, we we're like okay, we can't like how do we make people passionate about sponges or care about these sponges? Like, let's show the people who care so much about these sponges that they're willing to do these things, and then also trying to show that environment. Like, I think I don't know about Nate, but like I was pretty surprised we went up with the OceanWise research team. And they're collecting sponge samples for the aquarium in plastic bags in a cooler. It's not exactly <laughs> what people expect with science, but apparently that's very normal. Oh yeah. So I think there's that side of it, and like that was really kind of eye-opening is to be like, okay, like what does it take to do science? Mm -hmm. Like obviously there's a paper at the end, 
which is, you know, a different thing entirely in and of itself. But we were just fascinated by the people that like, yeah, they're just out there collecting sponges like this or Glenn Dennison, who literally was building like, he's an engineer and he was engineering homemade cameras and mapping systems to map the bottom of house out in his spare time. Like that's bizarre. So like that kind of thing really is compelling to us because obviously the data is like important to these people. And I think sometimes they don't even recognize that what they're doing is fascinating. Um, so that really pushed us forward. And whenever we saw that stuff, we kind of followed it as much as we could. Yeah. Yeah. I think people would be surprised to learn how much, especially in biology and like being out in the field and doing this, how much is done with, you know, some shovels and a cooler and plastic bags and ice or something, you know, like it's, it's really, it doesn't have to be a sophisticated uh, setup, but uh, it depends what you're doing. You know, we always think of like particle colliders and, and stuff like this, but really a lot of the biology stuff is people with boots on or, you know, in this case, you know, scuba masks on just going out there and doing it. So, um, yeah, no, it was a really cool film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would encourage people to listen to it. We can just wrap up here. So, um, thank you guys for, for joining me, taking some time to to talk about it. Yeah. And, um, if you want to, you know, let people know where they can find your work, you know, the, the social media stuff, whatever you want, please let everyone know. Our website is moonlessoasis.com. Uh, social media handle is Moonless Oasis. Uh, if you're in Canada, you can watch it on CBC Jam. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some sort of international deal worked out in the near future for people outside of Canada. Yeah, we have a section on our website for screenings and we'll be posting there and you can sign up for our email list if you want. We'll be kind of sporadically sending out emails. Unfortunately, it takes some time to kind of put these deals into place, but we're hoping that we'll have some some international legs and we'll be able to show this around the world. And the more people that tell us where they are and they want to watch it, the easier it'll be to make that happen. Right on. That's great. Um, well, and when you do get that information, let me know. I will Absolutely. pass that along to my audience as well. So, uh, yeah, once again, Nate, Bryce, it was a real pleasure to meet you guys. Uh, great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. There you have it. Dangerous diving in glass sponges, ancient prehistoric organisms alive and well off the west coast of Canada. Who would have thought? Uh, Thank you. Thank you again to both Nate and Bryce. Uh, It was, uh, like I said, it was a real pleasure to, to meet them and talk with them about you know, storytelling, science storytelling. It's something that I think is really important. Um, and I think they did a really great job with their film, uh, Moonless Oasis. So please do go to the website, moonlessoasis.com and check it out. Uh, sign up for the email list. Um, let them know you're out there and that you want to see the film that will help them get it to a wider audience. Moonless Oasis on the social medias. And of course, you know, hit me up at 2BradForYou, Twitter, Instagram, at BVampairedOn, Twitter, Instagram, 2BradForYou.wordpress.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us there and let us know what you think of the show, good or bad. Um, and wherever you're getting your podcast, rate, subscribe, follow, all that stuff really helps us out. So thank you, Nate. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you. To the listeners, especially, I love you, appreciate you, and I will catch you next time. Bye for now.